are your class conversations dominated by a small number of voices. In this episode, we explore a variety of class activities that support an inclusive learning environment and promote equity and participation while increasing student learning. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Today, our guest is Danica Savonic, an assistant professor of multi-ethnic literature at SUNY Cortland. Danica is the recipient of the K. Patricia Cross Future Leaders Award, a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship in Women's Studies, and a Mellon ACLS Dissertation Completion Fellowship. Welcome, Danica. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Our teas today are... I'm drinking a coconut lime seltzer. That sounds pretty good. It is. It's a good alternative to tea, I suppose. I think I'm pretending that I'm on a tropical island or something. Yeah, the weather around here would make me want to do that. So perhaps it's the same there. How far away are we from each other? I'm here in Cortland. You're... About an hour and 45 minutes, I think, by car. Okay. Very rainy today. Yeah, and I hear we have some snow coming up in the next 24 hours or so. So it should be interesting. I have the Prince of Wales tea. And I have a holiday tea from Twinings that I picked up in the tropics in Orlando oh. at the Online Learning Consortium a few weeks back. Sounds yummy. It is good. <laughs> You've written quite a bit on creating an, a supportive environment for discussing issues of race, class, gender, and sexuality. Let's first talk a little bit about the context in which you address these issues. What courses do you normally teach? I generally teach American literature courses. Sometimes those are general education courses. Sometimes they're within the English major. I've also taught a number of writing classes that are a little bit more interdisciplinary in nature. And regardless of whichever course I'm teaching, I like to give them a theme or put my own little twist on them. For instance, if I'm teaching a writing course this semester, the topic is the purpose of education. And so we're drawing from a wide different disciplines, people who've been writing about different learning methods. And then when I teach English courses, some of the topics I like to do are the arts of dissent. And we'll look at the theme of dissent in American literature. This semester, I'm currently teaching intro to multicultural literature, which has been super fun. And then next semester, I'll be teaching a graduate course on feminist worldmaking, which I'm really excited about. That sounds really exciting. What are some of the challenges you face in discussing some of these issues in your classroom and trying to have productive conversations? Well, some of the problems that I've noticed are consistent regardless of what classroom or what school I've been teaching in. But some of them vary according to the student population. But one of the most common problems that I see is just a lack of student participation. Or if there is participation, it'll be the same two or three students who dominate the conversation. And actually, just this weekend when I was home for the holidays, I was talking to my family about this. My aunt is auditing a course at SUNY Purchase. And she was saying that the same one or two students speak every single class period. And she's curious about what the other students have to say and what they're thinking. And even my grandmother, who is at Brooklyn College in the 1950s, she said she remembers 
feeling too scared to talk in most of her classes. And so it was only one or two of the, I guess, brightest and most vocal students who would talk in the classes. And then, of course, as I started teaching, I started to notice this as well. And I think it's every new instructor's nightmare, probably, that what if no one talks? What am I going to do with all that silence? And so I guess the main problems I've been trying to address are not having the same one or two students dominate the conversation, but having really every voice be heard in the classroom. And the more I've thought about it, and the more I've come to study classroom dynamics, the more I've realized it's not entirely the fault of the students in those situations. And actually, quite often, it is the shared responsibility of both the professor and the students to create a kind of environment where everyone feels like their voice matters and that they have something that they can say, that they won't get shot down by the professor, that they're not intimidated by their peers and whatnot. So a lot of my work has been trying to increase participation in classrooms. And also because my focus is often on race and class and gender and sexuality and literature, we have to figure out how to have productive conversations around those really difficult issues. And for a lot of students, it's their first time talking about these issues. And so we've had to establish ways that we feel comfortable talking about those important questions and issues. I was actually just going to follow up to what you were saying. Really curious about the emphasis on the first time students have talked about some of these things. And I think that that's really important. We've been having a, a reading group on our campus with a book called Race Talk. And that's something that we've mentioned pretty frequently, that a lot of these students have never been in a context to have a conversation about race. A lot of the faculty have never been in a situation to have a good conversation about race. So when it's someone's first time, how do you help that be productive and feel safe? Because you have to be vulnerable to be in those situations. Definitely. One of the most effective things that I think I've done is tell students that we're inevitably going to mess up in these conversations because our educations have not provided us with the language and the grammar and the vocabulary for talking about conditions of structural inequality. And so I make that the baseline or the premise. We know we're going to say the wrong thing and we are likely going to accidentally offend someone. And so as a class, what we do is establish protocols or ways that we want to collectively address how to handle those situations. And we come up with a set of community guidelines and principles and ideas that we agree upon for how to behave when we realize that, oh no, I could have said that better. I wish I hadn't said that. Or if one student feels offended by something. And so I think that has really helped, especially for students who are having these conversations for the first time. They know that it's okay to say the wrong thing. And we have an established procedure in place for how to deal with those moments. Can you talk a little bit about how you set those guidelines up and how students participate in that process? Yeah, definitely. So this is one of my favorite things to do every semester is have students co-author a set of community guidelines in order to foster inclusive discussions of difference. Because I want every student to understand that their voice matters. And I know one of the reactions that you can get is students can start feeling alienated. If they say the wrong thing, they can disengage. They can start thinking, I don't have a place in this conversation. And so one of the ways that we create that environment is we'll co-author this set of community guidelines. Rather than having students write them from scratch, I think that can be really difficult. So instead, what I'll do, it takes about, I would say, half of a class period to maybe half an hour. could be 40 minutes. It depends on the size of the class. I'll print out some really basic guidelines, four or five things that I think might work well in the class as principles that we might want to agree to abide by. So things like we won't make assumptions about anyone in the class's race, gender, ethnicity, things like that. 
and we read over them as a class. I usually project them at the front of the class and they also have them in front of them on a piece of paper. And we'll read through them as a class. They can ask questions. They can ask me to define a word they don't understand. And then I give them about 10 minutes to read through them quietly on their own with pen and paper and cross off and edit and add and remove anything that they don't like about the guidelines to add additional guidelines to change the wording of certain guidelines. And then rather than calling on students individually and having to put them on the spot, I have them work in pairs of two to go over some of the amendments and edits and adjustments that they would like to make. And then after five minutes or so, we go around the class and each pair presents one or two amendments that they would like to make. And so it really ranges from adding different adjectives and verbs to adding whole new amendments or saying that they didn't like one of the ones that I put up, which is totally fine with me. The idea behind not having to ask them to do it from scratch is just that they have something to work with. It's not that I'm wedded to those particular principles. I just wanted to give them some kind of language and some kind of grammar for how they might formulate the different community guidelines. Seems like the pair scenario would help to mitigate any issues that might arise from a dominant group dominating the rules. Yeah. That was going to be my question. But then I realized as you were talking that that might actually be how you solve some of that issue. Yeah. And it's pretty egalitarian. We go around the room and each group says something, even if it's by the time we get to the end, sometimes the groups are like, well, everyone already said what we are going to say. So we just wanted to agree that we really liked the amendment that this other group made. And so that way, each pair gets two or three minutes to add something, to say something, and then we move on. And so it's not like one pair gets to really dominate. The other thing I forgot to mention is that students go home. They have at least one or two evenings to think about the guidelines that we came up with. They have access to them. They can open them up at home. And it's not until the beginning of the following class that we ratify them. And often when we come back together at the beginning of the next class, they'll have thought of one or two things that they want to adjust. And once we make those final edits and adjustments, then we as a class decide that we agree to abide by them. Another nice thing about doing it in pairs is when people are speaking, it's a little safer because they're representing their group. They don't have to take a stand and it makes it a little more comfortable, perhaps, for those who might have been reticent. Exactly. I like that you have the ability to review over a couple of days as well, because that also gives students who don't want to speak up the opportunity to email you or communicate with you separately too, right? Yeah, definitely. How well have the guidelines worked? Have students responded well? Do you get more buy-in to the guidelines since they created them? Yes, absolutely. I was really surprised the first time I did this. I was like, this is one of those wacky pedagogical experiments. I might fall flat on my face. They might think that I'm an alien from another planet. But they were so enthusiastic. And I've actually had students from former classes say that was one of the most meaningful things that we did that semester. I think about that a lot. I wish more teachers did that. And so I've gotten really positive feedback on it. And it's also fun. It's always one of the best conversations that we have throughout the semester. And, you know, it turns out that they have a lot to say about the issue. Actually, I often do this assignment when we're teaching a work of literature called Citizen by author Claudia Rankine, which talks a lot about microaggressions. And students have witnessed and they've experienced these microaggressions in the classroom. And so they're eager to have a chance to participate in crafting a classroom that isn't going to have these kinds of uncomfortable and awkward moments. I also should say that when we do this, I share with students beforehand several of the studies that have been done recently on classroom participation and who feels most empowered to speak in the classroom. So there's been a lot of studies done on gender and the experiences of students of color. And what a lot of these studies have found is that those voices that are most empowered to speak in mainstream media and culture 
are also the students who feel empowered to take up time in the classroom. And so I share this with students before we begin the community guidelines activity. And they're always really interested. I have the sense that some of them have witnessed or experienced or might have some sense that these things go on, but to actually see the research and to see the findings and to see these massive studies that have been done, they're just interested in it. And especially because my classes are about race and class and gender and structural inequality, I think it's fascinating for them to see the way that what we often think of as huge systemic issues can come to influence who speaks and who participates in the classroom as well. Maybe we could share those citations in our show notes. Certainly. You've used something called commons in a box. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is for people who are not familiar with that? Sure. It's a free open source learning and writing platform. It came out of the CUNY Graduate Center. It's a combination of WordPress and BuddyPress. And so it's this easy to install package that allows you to create digital learning spaces. And so different universities have taken it up to do different things. Often I'll see institutions using it as a space for their professors to host course websites. They might want to have some kind of blog that features student writing. They could use it for digital humanities projects. And it's free and it's open source. And so all you really need is server space. As often as possible, I've tried to host my courses on either Commons in a Box or currently I'm using an installation of WordPress.org as an alternative to using Blackboard or Canvas. And I could talk a little bit about why if you're interested. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about what the advantages of this is compared to, say, one of the common course management systems? Sure. I see the primary benefit of these platforms as they help students to develop transferable skills that are going to aid them in the world beyond the classroom. And so I'll talk a little bit about what I mean by that. WordPress is one of the most common platforms on which the websites in the world are built. The latest statistic that I saw was something like 30% of the world's websites are built on the WordPress content management system. And so I like to organize my courses on WordPress so that I can familiarize students with how websites are put together, how you can build them, how they think, how they organize information. And so what I try to do throughout the semester is scaffold students' interaction with the platform at the beginning, it's pretty user-friendly. They create an account. They're able to log in to our site. And then gradually, they start going into the back end, which WordPress calls the dashboard. And they start creating their own content. So they get to experience the process of going back and forth between the back end and then the front end and seeing what that process is like and how information is organized on the WordPress platform. So they start creating blogs. And then what I like to do towards the end of the semester is deconstruct our class website and take it apart and break it and redesign it with students so that they can see, first of all, how easy it is to build a website. A lot of my students are new to this. They're not necessarily computer science majors. They haven't taken computer science courses. And so they've interacted with a lot of websites, but they haven't really gone in and thought about how they might build their own. And so I show them how our course website is built and we redesign it. We do all kinds of things. And then often for students' final projects, they will have the option of designing a website related to something that we've done in the course. And they often choose that option. They like it. They like getting to experiment with WordPress. For most of them, it's their first taste of the platform. And several of them have said that they've gone on to learn more about WordPress because they've become really interested in it. And I see this as a really great opportunity for students first to think a little bit more critically about how the internet works and how these pages that we're constantly interacting with, how they're constructed. 
and also to develop a transferable skill that could become a really valuable part of their resume and the skills that they will bring to the work world. Being able to build websites on WordPress is huge. And so I find that starting that process early can be really helpful. It also creates an opportunity for us to have conversations like, well, why is our course built on WordPress when all of your other courses are on Blackboard? And we get to talk a little bit about what Blackboard is and the different ways that content management systems, especially in higher education, work to structure certain kinds of relationships of teaching and learning. Does the institution host WordPress or are you hosting your own instance of it? Ideally, the university will host it. When I was at CUNY, they have a really strong culture around open educational resources and free writing platforms. And there's a big community around that. It might exist at my new institution. I have to do a little bit more work to find it. As far as I know, there's a lot of people are using Blackboard at my institution. Ideally, best case scenario, the university would provide server space and then you could have an installation of WordPress or Commons in a box. But currently, I'm using Reclaim Hosting and Domain of One's Own in order to have a Classroom Commons installation that I'm using across the three different classes I'm teaching. Do you use the open aspect of that? Is the student's work public or are you keeping it closed to the classroom or is that something decided on a case-by-case or class-by-class basis? Yeah, that's a great point. Thanks for bringing that up. It varies. Parts of the class websites are public, parts of it are private. And another benefit of working in a quasi-public, quasi-private space is that it allows us to have conversations about what information students are putting on the internet and what they want visible, what do they want to become part of their professional digital identity, what do they want to show up in search results versus what do they not want to show up in search results. So we have a lot of these conversations early on in the semester when they're establishing their accounts. We talk about the risks and the repercussions versus the benefits of using their real name to do the blogging that they'll be doing on the site. And then for their final projects, often but not always, I would encourage them to use their real name because they put a lot of time and effort. They're carefully revising these projects and they are deliberately constructing them with the idea that they're going to be writing for a public audience. But of course, in this climate of anti-immigration that we're living in, you have to be super careful about what you're encouraging students to put their name on. And so I always have conversations around that. There's always an option never to use your real name. You can always use a pseudonym for the blogging and for the final projects. You can always submit solely to me instead of publishing to a public audience because I understand there's severe risk and in some cases they will outweigh the benefits of creating something publicly. And we should note that you have an article on a chronicle describing your work here and we'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. You mentioned student blogging. Can you talk a little bit about how the student blogging is used in your classes and how that augments student learning and how that might facilitate some of these conversations that might be tricky to have? Sure. I love student blogging. I don't know how I would teach these courses without it. My courses are structured around the blog. It's one of their major assignments. And so for every single class, two or three students are assigned to blog about the assigned reading. I think the requirement is something like 800 words or so. And they have to do a small close reading. So an analysis of the excerpt of whatever literary text we're reading. And it has to end with two discussion questions. And for every student who isn't blogging, so the majority of the class, they have to leave a comment on those blogs before our class period starts. And so the blogs are due noon the day before class. And then students have from noon until our class period to leave their comments. And then the way the course is structured, the same day that those three students are blogging, so they're each writing a blog, 
They are also facilitating a class discussion, a 10-minute activity, or it can be a presentation. It can just be more of a conversation. They have 10 minutes at the beginning of the next class to do whatever they want. And I encourage them to make it the best lesson plan that they have ever seen or the way that they want their ideal course to be structured. And so I encourage them to try things like Think, Pair, Share or to do interactive activities. And it's really exciting to see First of all, the things that students choose to blog about. Because with the readings that we're discussing, there's so much that you could talk about. I have certain things I want to talk about, but those might not necessarily align with what students are interested in within the text. And so having these open-ended blogs allows students to identify what it is they're most interested in. It allows them to get feedback on their writing from their peers prior to our class session. One way that I come to think about the blog that I talk to students about it is as a rough draft for a paper. They're putting out a thesis, they're putting out an interpretation, they're providing some evidence from the text to support it. And then they have this tremendous opportunity to get feedback from all of their peers. And so in the comments, the other students will be like, I really like this point. I have another example that can help you support your point. They might raise objections, they might raise counterpoints. Well, have you thought of this other thing? And so it's a really great way for them to increase the quality of their writing and their ideas by getting feedback from their peers. Actually, this happened just in our previous class. A student was using a term devaluing to talk about sexuality in one of the books that we were reading. And a lot of his fellow classmates were saying that word wasn't working the way that he thought that it was working. So in his facilitation, he kind of talked through the feedback that he got. And as a class, we came up with a better word that would more precisely name the kind of relationship that he saw developing in the literary text. And so with the class facilitations, it provides students with an opportunity to practice their public speaking and to practice standing up in front of a classroom. A lot of the students say that they're really nervous at first, but that they're glad in the end that that they did it and they always get through it and we always manage. And so this kind of pairing of the blog with the in-class facilitation really teaches students that they are active knowledge producers and that they have something to contribute to the class and that their voice matters. They know that they're not allowed to just disappear and sink into the background. They're actually the ones up there in front of the class leading the lesson. And it's interesting to see actually the ways that it increases their performance once they're back in the chair of the student because they know what it feels like to be up at the front. And so they'll put out a question and they then get to experience what it's like to have no one raise their hand. And so they become much better students and much more engaged once they return to their seats and presume the more traditional role of being a student. I never know what students are going to do for their facilitation. They don't have to run it by me beforehand. So it's always exciting. I don't know what they're going to do in class today. And it's really made my role as an educator different. And I've had to learn to listen really carefully to the things that students are saying when they're up there presenting. And my job becomes connecting what they're saying to the main ideas and the main skills and the main topics of the class. So for instance, if a student is giving a presentation, I might interject and say, that's a thesis statement. What you just said, you just made a thesis statement. And then they start to recognize learning how to make an argument, how to make a thesis statement is one of the skills of the course, but takes a long time or they're not quite sure what I mean by that. But when they're talking, they'll just do it naturally. And so my job becomes pointing out to them that they're already doing the things that we're learning about and just helping them recognize better the ways that their facilitations are connecting to the themes and the skills of the course. I wanted to circle back to the leaving comments for other students. So they do the close reading, they post about that, and then students comment on it. When they're commenting, how do you help students learn what a good comment is? 
Yeah, that actually becomes a topic of discussion early on in this semester. They're given a few guidelines. It should be, I don't know, 150 words or so. It needs to make a contribution to the post. It can't just be, I liked your post or I didn't like your post. And then what I tried this semester is we implemented kind of halfway through the semester, this rule that each comment needs to provide a quote from the text so that the commenter is either supporting, providing further evidence that will support the author of the blog's claim or providing a counterexample. One of my students last class, he said, conversation makes the best interpretation. And I really love that because they're starting to learn through the commenting the ways that all academic writing is a conversation among various viewpoints. And that when they're writing a scholarly paper, when they're writing a research essay, they are inserting their voices into larger conversations. They're in dialogue with people. It's not you write a paper and it exists in a vacuum. It's actually a synthesis of all these different viewpoints and ideas. And so I see the commenting as kind of a rehearsal for class discussion. So when we show up in class, say, for instance, students aren't being particularly talkative, I can say, well, you said this in your comment. And so I know that they've already engaged with the ideas. And it allows often our class conversation to reach a higher level because they already know what several of their peers' interpretations of the text are. They've already thought about them. They've already thought about the pros and the cons and how we might need to complicate some of these analyses. And so it it just takes our class discussions to the next step. Do you do anything to ensure that everyone responds to a certain number of posts to make sure that you don't see everyone replying just to one of the posts to make sure you get some balance there? Do you have a mechanism for doing that? Yeah, that's a great question. So for every class, students have to comment on at least one post. They're welcome to comment on more than one, but the requirement is one comment prior to class. I don't have a mechanism for ensuring that the class has 25 students. If we have three bloggers, one blog might get 10 comments and the others might get four or five. And one way to kind of address that in the classes is encouraging students to think about their blogs Think about the title of the blog. Think about the content of the blog. Think about how they're competing for the attention of their peers. I encourage them to say, okay, your peers have three blogs to choose from. How are you going to get them to read yours? It's a way of getting them to think a little bit about audience and what is the function of a title? What is the work that a title can do? And from that introductory paragraph, how can they give their reader a sense of what their blog is going to be about? How can they convince their reader that there's going to be a good payoff? that their blog is worth reading. And so it's interesting to see the different ways that they try to attract the attention of their peers because they do want those comments. And I find they get excited about the different feedback they get. They're not required to respond to the comments, but they do often, which, yeah, it's always exciting to witness. I try to linger. I lurk a little bit on the blogs that I'm often not interjecting in the conversations, but just kind of reading through them. And that's actually the other benefit is that it ends up serving as a mode of formative assessment because I can see what they have understood from the readings and what might be missing, what might be the things that I need to address in the time that I have, what's not quite getting through to them, either in terms of aspects of the reading that they overlooked or in terms of the skills. So if I tell them your blog needs to have a main point, it needs to have a thesis, and I'm seeing that they're not quite doing that. I can then adjust my lesson plans so that that becomes the focus of the next class. And I can use their blogs, their own words as an example to say, okay, how could we give this blog a stronger thesis? And so it's quite common that we'll end up editing or revising some of the blog posts. They get projected up on the screen and students, because we've created a culture that they're constantly giving feedback on each other's ideas, students feel a lot less embarrassed or they understand that we're all trying to become better writers. And so they're okay with it if I project their blog post and we talk through what are some of the pros, what are some of the cons, how could we strengthen this? 
And it's a much more authentic learning experience having them focus on audience and trying to build a strong thesis statement. It seems like the blog post assignment really primed students well for the final projects that you had mentioned earlier that have a public audience because they're already practicing writing for a specific audience and so now they're writing for a more general audience, I would assume. Can you talk us through that a little bit? The final projects for my class often vary, but they're usually collaborative. They're usually digital. They're usually public. They're usually some kind of creative student-driven element. It's usually students identifying the topic and then running with it, whether that's a research blog or whether that's currently my students in Intro to Multicultural Literature are co-authoring a glossary of key terms for literary studies. I have never done this before. It is a total experiment. I don't know if they know that this is my first time doing this. So it'll be interesting. I don't know if they'll hear this podcast, but whatever, it's fine. So I've done different versions of these collaborative public final projects. They vary sometimes based on the content of the course, students' level of preparation, what are the aims and objectives of the different courses. It's a little bit different for a basic writing composition course versus a more advanced literature course. And so one of the formats I've done is have students co-author scholarly articles that they would submit to an actual journal. And so I did this in one of my freshman writing classes. We spent the entire semester talking about contemporary issues in education. So related to technology in the classroom, active learning versus lecturing, conditions of educational equality in segregated schools. And about halfway through the semester, they were put into groups and they had to identify a research question. They did an annotated bibliography. They developed a whole research project. And then they made it into an article, a short article that they submitted to the scholarly academic peer-reviewed journal, Hybrid Pedagogy, to see if they could get it published or not. And I had been in contact with the journal's editors since the summer before the class. So they knew this was coming. It would not have been possible if I hadn't been working with them because they knew there was going to be a really quick turnaround time where the students needed to know if they got revised and resubmit, if they got rejected, or if they got accepted. And I knew that this was a wildly fanciful or an unrealistic expectation to ask students to get a scholarly journal article published. These are basic writing students at Queens College. A lot of them are first-generation students. They work jobs. They are English language learners. And so in addition to reviewing the conventions of English grammar and how to write a paragraph, how to write an academic paper, all things that were new or needed to be reviewed they were also trying to get their writing published in a major publication. And so what ended up happening with that is that several students got revised and resubmit. But by the time they did, it was the end of the semester and finals were happening. And so I tailored the assignment a little bit towards the end. I tweaked it because all semester I'd been telling them, these blogs are important. These things that you're writing, your research, all of this matters because people are actually going to be reading this and you want them to take it seriously and you want them to listen to you. You don't want to lose their attention halfway through. And so I needed to come up with a way that they would still get published, even if they chose not to endure the editorial feedback loop of revise and resubmit or the accept with minor revisions. And so what we had them do is they took the feedback that they got from the editors and several of the groups chose to post to haystack.org, which is a tremendous resource. It is an academic scholarly network of 15,000 plus members of scholars and students and academics and artists and activists. And so there's a special group within Haystack that showcases and features and highlights the writing of undergraduates. So many of my students ended up submitting their final blogs there. 
But one group did continue. <laughs> they kept revising their submission and going through the queries that they were getting from the editors and then the copy editors and just all of these stages of the writing process that were very new to them. This is a required writing course. No one showed up at that course eager to do all these drafts and revision and the skills that we teach in a basic writing course. But they continued in that editorial feedback loop for about a year after our class ended. And then in August of 2017, their article was published in Hybrid Pedagogy, which was very exciting. And so that is now something that they can put on their resumes. And I was just so impressed with them for sticking through it because we know everything that goes into writing a journal article. But for them, they didn't even know at the beginning of the semester what a peer-reviewed journal article was. And so it was like a huge learning process. So that's one of the formats of these collaborative public final projects, submitting something to an established publication, which required a lot of willingness on the part of the journal editors to work within a really quick time frame. And the managing editor Skyped into my class several times and talked to students about the journal and helped them with their submissions. They got to pitch their ideas to him. It was great. Some of the other formats I've used that have also been good, I've had students write explicitly for Haystack. And that's an opportunity for them to tailor their writing for a very specific community. So that's something that we did this semester in the writing class that I'm teaching. We read so much about Haystack. We read about its history. There was an article in Inside Higher Ed calling it the ethical social network and talking about their commitment to protecting their users' data. We learned about who is a member of Haystack, who are the different people who are reading it. How does the website organize information by topic, by tags, by categories? And so they were reading and analyzing the site itself before they even started writing their research blogs. So it was a similar process where they identified a research question and they authored blogs that were specifically going to be then tailored for the Haystack audience. And so one of the big aims of that assignment was the skill of Kairos and figuring out how to tailor your writing for a specific community of readers and figuring out what are the conventions, what are the affordances of this specific writing space, and how can I best get my point across to this very specific audience. So that was useful in helping us have conversations about audience awareness and tone and how you make an argument. How do you convince someone that your point is right without alienating them? So that's one example of having students write for Haystack. And the nice thing about Haystack is that it comes with a built-in user community. You have 16,000 people who are visiting the site and reading things. The other kind of format for these public projects is what we're doing now with the keywords. Students are co-authoring these individual keywords. They've identified specific words that have emerged that they're interested in throughout all the readings that we've done this semester and through our discussions and through the blogs. And the final product for that will be something that is posted on our course WordPress site. So it'll be a page or an offshoot. I'm hoping to write some kind of table of contents that will link to each of the students' posts. Hopefully there'll be media and this will become something that they can then share. They can decide that they want to make part of their professional identity, part of their portfolio, or they can decide not to. It's really up to them. And so one of the things that I'm constantly thinking about in developing these assignments is how to actually connect students to audiences of readers and people who could actually benefit from a keyword entry on memoir or on ghosts. That's another keyword. Apparently, we talk a lot about ghosts in my class. <laughs> and this is coming out of the research that I've done on activist pedagogy and really thinking about the role of the teachers connecting students to audiences and people that could potentially benefit from the writing that they've been doing. So thinking about these projects as both a benefit to the students in the class and also to larger publics and communities. How have students responded to this sort of work? You mentioned that some of the classes are required courses. Students are not necessarily marching in, excited to do these sorts of things. So it sounds like you've hooked them a little bit. What is their final response to these? In general, 
it's been really positive. The jury is still out for this semester. We're going to do course evaluations, I think, next week. So I'll learn more. But in the past, I do a lot of framing around what we're doing, in part because I was always a very willful student and I did not like being told what to do. But if I understood why I was being told to do that thing, then I would get really into it and really excited. And so with these student-centered assignments and activities, I'm always super explicit. This is why we're doing this. These are what I see as the benefits of this. This is why we're authoring a set of community guidelines. This is why you're doing a presentation. You're doing a presentation because public speaking is one of the most valuable skills that employers look for. And so when I'm writing your recommendation letters, I want to be able to tell them what a great public speaker you are. And that's why I'm asking you to stand in front of the classroom and facilitate this. Also, I should mention this semester and at SUNY Cortland, a lot of the students are going on to become teachers. And so it's important to have these experiences at the front of the classroom. I think that being explicit really helps students. And the other thing I'll say is that I often am explicit about how frustrating student-centered learning can be. And we talk about how it can feel difficult and how sometimes we just wish that the teacher would give us the answers rather than making us figure it out ourselves or making us work in small groups. And so I try to create spaces for students to express those kind of emotions and reactions to things. I also try really hard in designing these student-centered assignments to design, to create the conditions where, for instance, we're doing a collaborative writing project. I try to give them an assignment that actually requires multiple minds and that if they had tried to do that exact same assignment on their own, the final product would not be as good as if they were doing it as a group. So I put a lot of thought into carefully constructing these in a way that they will be oriented to succeed in them. Recently, I wrote a blog on collaborative close reading, which is a really, really difficult skill to teach. It takes years for most of us to learn how to do close reading. But I've tried to create this assignment that had students work on it in groups. And so rather than having to notice all the million different things that are going on in a passage of literature, they had a bunch of different minds put to the task. And they were all looking at the same paragraph for 20 minutes and dissecting it. And they were all contributing their different insights. And so rather than having to go at it alone, they were able to learn from the different perspectives that the other students brought to the text. And so I think just being really explicit about why behind everything has helped to ensure that the reactions have generally been positive. How have other faculty responded? Have other people started working on building more productive conversations? Have other people in your department started working more on open pedagogy projects? Well, I would hesitate to say anything explicitly about my department because I'm so brand new, my first semester in the department. But one thing that's been super exciting for me has been to see people, especially with this recent blog that I wrote on collaborative close reading, it went viral on academic Twitter and people have been reporting back because that's one of the things that I asked them to do is let me know how it works. Let me know if you have any suggestions for how to make it better. And almost every day I'm getting tweets from people at universities across the country saying, I tried collaborative close reading and this is what my students did. And they'll post pictures of the passages that their students highlighted. And so that makes me feel like I'm part of a community that is bigger than my own institution. And so when I'm running these, of course, I hope that they will be helpful to my colleagues. But I really feel like I'm part of a bigger academic community. And part of that is because I post these blogs to Haystack, a community of 16,000, however many users, but then it can get tweeted out. So even if you don't have a Haystack account, you can still read the blogs. And there's so many ideas about scholarship being really isolating, but things like that and getting to talk to people and discuss pedagogy with people at different institutions makes it feel a lot less isolating. But in terms of your question about reactions of colleagues, I have been super lucky both at CUNY and now at SUNY. 
in terms of support for the kinds of things that I'm interested in doing. These are schools with very strong commitments to education where people are already interested in and talking about student-centered methods and curious and wanting to learn more. The other day, I had my students write found poems, which is the genre of poetry where you take some kind of existing document, often it's a bureaucratic document, and you make it into a poem by cutting it up and whiting it out and mangling it and turning it into poetry. And my students created these awesome, awesome found poems. They were beautiful. So we spent a day in class. I gave them whiteout. I gave them scissors. I gave them tape. They started as banal documents. They made them into stunning poems. They would bring in their tuition bills or song lyrics with offensive stereotypes in them. One of them brought in the transcript from the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. And they took these documents. And as a way of thinking about language and power, they made them into these gorgeous found poems. And so I went to the chair of my department and I said, hey, you know, my students read these poems and I would love to have some place to display them because I think they're really awesome. And not only did she give me permission to tear down what was on the, the bulletin board, she helped me do it. We tore down these old flyers that had been up there for decades and we put my students' found poems on. And so now we have this beautiful display in our hallway of student work. And several of my colleagues have reported seeing students stop and read the poems and take pictures of it. And so they're excited to see their work has become part of this gallery. In general, I've just been really lucky and fortunate to work with colleagues who are similarly invested in helping students. I did think of a few ideas for people who might not be so fortunate and ways that they could start doing student-centered things. The first would be, and I've already mentioned this, creating a free profile on haystack.org because there are so many people out there doing really creative and exciting things in their classrooms and connecting their classrooms to larger movements for social justice and thinking about how do you engage students in really important discussions about contemporary social issues. And so Haystack has been a phenomenal place for me to connect with other people who are doing that kind of work. I try to start small. And so something like Think, Pair, Share is so easy. It's taking an index card, giving students 90 seconds to respond to some kind of open-ended prompt. Then they turn to the students sitting next to them. They share their responses. And then we go around the classroom and I transcribe each group's answer to the question on the board. And so their ideas become the material that I then get to teach the course through. We crowdsource responses to some question related to whatever the topic of discussion is that day. And something like that is so easy. It's so simple. We have gone through, I would say we're in the thousands of index cards in terms of my courses this semester because the students like it and they recognize that that changes the classroom dynamics. They recognize that suddenly it's not just one or two students dominating the conversation. So when they get up to the front of the class and they get to facilitate something, I would say, I don't know, 65, 70% of them choose to do Think, Pair, Share because they recognize that it really lowers the barriers of anxiety about participating in class. Everyone has 90 seconds to scribble something on their index card and it's only an index card it's tiny. There's not any kind of pressure to write something beautiful. And that becomes just such an easy way to really transform the dynamics of the classroom, low cost, low time investment. And even when I'm thinking at the bigger scale of assignments and rethinking the research paper so that it's not just being submitted to the professor, but it's for a public audience, I try not to overhaul everything at once. So it's like each semester, I'll try one new assignment not throwing everything away and starting from scratch each time because it takes a lot of energy to do these things. And so thinking about how we can make small changes and experiments, but not overwhelm ourselves or our students. And the other thing that I would suggest if somebody finds themselves 
in a situation where they want to start trying these things, but might not have the kinds of tremendous support that I've been lucky to have. There's just so much research out there on the effectiveness of student-centered pedagogy. We've read a lot of it in my course this semester on writing and education. We read a lot of the studies that have shown how positive of an impact it can have on students to discover ideas for themselves and to work in small groups and solve problems and arrive at answers rather than sitting and listening to a lecture. Just having some of those studies in my back pocket I've always felt that if I was called upon, you know, why did you do that? I can't believe you let the students help assess each other's papers. I would have some things that I could cite that I could go back to to say, well, actually, it's been shown that asking students to metacognitively reflect on the implications of their writing is a great strategy. So that kind of thing has been really helpful for me in terms of thinking about relationships to colleagues and different reactions to this kind of pedagogy. Normally wrap up by asking, what next? Well, at the small scale, I guess we have this digital glossary of keywords that will be coming out from my multicultural literature students. Going to learn all about ghosts and power and assimilation and why these words are important for how we think about and analyze literature. So really excited to see what they do with that. And then I guess the, the bigger scale, I'm working on a book on the activist pedagogies of teacher poets from the 1960s and 1970s. And I'm hoping that some of that work will help us really understand the ways that a lot of contemporary student-centered practices, things that we've talked about today, a lot of them emerged in the 60s and 70s, and especially in relation to the critiques of power emerging from the social movements of that era, from the women's movement and the civil rights movement and protests against the Vietnam War. And so I've been thinking a lot about how those critiques of power necessitated new relationships of teaching and learning. And this was especially happening in the work of poets who I'm interested in. And so that book is also considering the ways that interactions with students shaped American literature in ways that we rarely consider. And also the tremendous role that poets and authors and especially feminist poets have played in creating a lot of the contemporary student-centered pedagogies that we know today to be so effective. Sounds really exciting. Yeah, it's really fun to work on. (laughs) In some of your posts, you've listed a large variety of techniques that people can try, and we'll include links to those in the show notes as well. Thank you. This has been a fascinating discussion, and we look forward to hearing more about what you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. Yeah, thanks for joining us. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Editing assistance provided by Kim Fisher, Brittany Jones, Gabrielle Perez, Joseph Santarelli Hansen, and Dante Perez.